Genesis 42, just a short uh, 38 verses. <clears throat> when Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? And he said, behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. So 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. They said, from the land of Canaan, to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them, and he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, no, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, we, your servants, are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, it is as I said to you, you are spies, but this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you. Or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody, and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households, and bring your youngest brother to me, so your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, In truth we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give him provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this their hearts failed them, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? When they came to Jacob their father in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, We are honest men, we have never been spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me, and take grain for the famine of your households, and go your, and go your way. 
Bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you are not spies, but honest men. And I will deliver your brother to you, and you shall trade in the land. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My my son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to come to him on, on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Uh, Father, that's a long story. Uh, We're afraid of how long this sermon might be because of how long that story is, but we live long stories too. Uh, But we need desperately to find ourselves in this story, for you to find us in our story, uh, to bring healing that all of us need. So would you do that as we look at your word together this morning? I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I had an opportunity to be together with most of the elders and a couple of the deacons this weekend, and we shared our life story kind of through a tool that I, you'd call a life map that focuses on the highlights in our lives, the hardships in our lives, and the heroes in their lives. And guess what was a common denominator in each person's stories? Family drama. Uh, deep woundedness that happened in our families of origin that have created big gaping patterns. Folks, your leaders have issues here. (laughs) Uh, uh, We all are weak and wounded by the fall, and so we kind of laid that out before one another. And uh, But the beautiful thing is, in, in the midst of the family drama, there was another consistent thing through each person's story. It's redemption. Uh, The both sides of the gospel about how we're far worse off than we ever imagined. We're far more wounded in our family of origin and have these deeply unhealthy patterns that we spend the rest of our lives learning about, but we're far more loved than we ever dare dream at the same time. And so there's this beautiful mix that draws our hearts to one another. Uh, So I learned your leaders have issues. Uh, Then everybody heard mine. Guess what they found out? family drama, and I've got issues. Like, it would have been really natural to think, uh-oh, <laughs> uh, we're going to call this guy as a senior pastor? Oh, my. Uh, but what I find, and I think you find, too, is we think how we're going to bond with one another is impressing one another, right? But the reality is when we really have our hearts drawn to another, it, it's when we see both the woundedness and the weaving pattern of redemption in our lives, and it draws us to one another. Uh, probably each one of us in the room in light of the family drama that we've experienced uh, have some things that are unhealed uh, and there's deep-seated conflict in. Some of us have walked through life situations as well where we just experience hardship in relationships of some kind. It's especially disillusioning when that might happen in the context of church. And the hurt is just so great, sometimes it feels impossible to walk through and resolve, or it takes a long time to get to that place. Uh, But this passage uh, gives a picture to us of someone who's got some serious family drama going on. In fact, 
If you want to feel a little bit better about your family of origin, read Genesis because they are a train wreck, uh, especially Jacob's family. I mean, it's just yuck and way more dysfunctional than yours and way more dysfunctional of the family that you're currently leading because that's true too. Uh, but what we find in this story, as long as it is, is the gospel way to walk through and eventually bring a measure of healing to deep-seated conflict, both within our family systems and current families, as well as deeply broken uh, relationships within our friends. So we're going to see this unfold kind of corresponding to the scenes. We'll see how we naturally cover up in response to the drama that's in our narrative, uh, what it takes to come clean, and then, because nobody does this right or well, <laughs> why we're loved anyway. How we cover up, what it takes to come clean, and why we're loved anyway. Uh, let me catch you up. I'm preaching through the Joseph cycle, Genesis 37 through 50, with my students. And so I preach this Wednesday night, but you haven't been here through the previous chapters. So let me, if this story is new or you need a refresher, let you, me let you know where we are. Uh, the cycle started in Genesis 39, where uh, Joseph is the favored child of his father, Jacob. I mean, Jacob had issues from his father, and now he turns around and creates it among his, his sons. But Jacob is the beloved daughter of Rachel. He's not the firstborn of Jacob's sons, but he is Rachel's firstborn, Je Jacob and Rachel's firstborn. And so he gets all the affection. Joseph has become essentially Jacob's idol. He, all the pressure and family vision was going to take place through him. He's dressed in a fancy coat, which causes his brothers not to be crazy about him. Then he has these dreams about the prominence that he will have. And like most 17-year-olds, he's narcissistic. And so he tells them. Uh, and that alienates them further so badly that when he comes to check on them, which was not a great idea of Jacob's, to check on them as they're shepherding in the wilderness, they throw him into a pit. They first want to kill him. Uh, Reuben, the firstborn son, intervenes and begs for them not to kill him, and they end up uh, selling him into slavery, a stripped slave who once wore a royal robe. Uh, chapter 38 goes into the brother Judah's story and the lack of integrity in his life as a follower of God. But chapter 39 opens up and we find Joseph in uh, Potiphar's house in Egypt and he's deeply betrayed by Potiphar's wife and it ends up sending him to prison even though things had flourished while he was in Potiphar's house. Uh, he ends up in prison. Guess what happens there? Flourishes there as well. And after he's been there several years, the cupbearer of the king uh, and the chief baker of the king are sentenced because Pharaoh gets really angry with them. Uh, by the way, this is a, has anybody seen Jesus, uh, Joseph's Technicolor Dreamcoat? Uh, it's surprising how that musical is relatively accurate. With one major exception, uh, Pharaoh turns up as Elvis in that story, uh, which I completely wasn't expecting and made me laugh like crazy. Uh, but they end up, uh, uh, Joseph interprets their dreams. They both come true. One is resurrected on the third day. The other is executed on the third day. But the one who is resurrected on the third day, the cupbearer, forgets about Joseph. So Joseph was 17 uh, when he was sold into slavery. Uh, he's in Potiphar's house and in, now in prison for almost a decade. But there comes a time where the cupbearer 
remembers Joseph because Pharaoh has two dreams. Joseph had had two dreams. The cupbearer and baker had two dreams. Then Pharaoh has two dreams, and he remembers finally Joseph after a few years. And Joseph is brought up and interprets Pharaoh's dreams that there would be seven years of abundance. Are you remembering this? Seven years of abundance and seven years of famine. And then he proposes public policy that will allow Egypt to survive and also for them to be a source of life to the surrounding nations. And so we have got, we, the narrative starts off in Canaan, the promised land. It goes to Egypt, and now we're returning uh, to the promised land and step back into the drama with Jacob and his sons. And Jacob starts off hearing the news that there is grain for sale in Egypt with the most dad-like comment you could possibly imagine. Did you see it? Verse 2, why do you look at one another? I mean, is that not a dad thing to say? Uh, because they hear, he has heard that there is grain that could allow them to live in Egypt, and so they set off, but there's one condition. He would not allow Benjamin, his next beloved son, who took Joseph's place to travel with them. It's been 20 years since Joseph had been betrayed by his brothers. Can you imagine how often in his years of continuing to go downward, uh, how often he had felt grieved, how often those painful memories came back? But what's really interesting in the midst of all the hardship that Joseph endures, uh, the narcissism gets weakened and the trust in God gets emboldened. And Joseph has the ability from his woundedness to perceive things in people's stories that he never would have had he not walked through it as well. It's almost his superpower. And so when the brothers arrive in Egypt after a long journey and he sees them, he's dressed up in Egyptian garb. They lost Solomon at 17. He's probably about 37 at this time. They don't recognize him, but Joseph recognizes them. So can you imagine the feeling that he felt? when he encountered his brothers who had deeply betrayed and wounded him and they walk into the room. He could have blasted them. He could have said, hey, I'm Joseph, everything's cool, but they would both have missed what they most needed to walk through in their deep-seated conflict. And Joseph, as God has worked in the hardship of his life, strikes a surgical strike to his brother's heart and he speaks roughly to them because he's testing to them to see what their hearts are like 20 years past. Look at verse 10 and 11. Joseph has come up with a narrative that says, you must be spies. It would have been too obvious had he said, you know, I bet you sold your brother into slavery. Uh huh. <laughs> you know? uh, but he, he's trying to test their heart. So he comes up with a narrative that casts them as spies. He knows, that obviously, that that's untrue. But he also does not trust their heart. And he's trying to tease out what is in their hearts. And look what comes out of their hearts in verse 10. Um, in, in fact, what I want you to do, kids, would you do this? I want you to put your hand up like this. And from the story that you know, if what they say is true, we go like this. If what they say is doubtful, we can go like this. If what they say is an absolute false narrative, we go like this, okay? So let's go. Uh, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. True statement. That's where the narrative begins. Uh, 
we look at verse 11. This, notice how often the we or the I comes up. We are all sons of one man, true? Thumbs up. We are honest men. Wow. We are honest men. Joseph, the betrayed, has his brothers living out of a different narrative that he knows is false, that he's trying to tease out, but they are elevating their righteousness into self-righteousness. We're not spies. We are honest men, no. And then look at the last part of the narrative. Um, your servants have never been spies. True? True. That's what, how we weave together our narratives. Uh, if you're in a family drama or deep-seated conflict with family, have you noticed that two narratives get uh, promoted that sound like they're describing two completely different events? We, we arrange the narratives in a manner that elevates our rightness and minimizes our fallenness and maximizes the other person's fallenness. And Joseph is doing a surgical strike to bring this out in the hearts of his brothers and look what he finds. Their narrative has in it ways that they are okay. And that's where they live above the surface. Like an iceberg that goes way beneath, that's what you can see from the water above, but there's an iceberg underneath, and Joseph is trying to undermine the iceberg. Um, here's a little one, since we're just getting to know each other. I tend to overshare. I'm not, hopefully not going to overshare this morning. I did that this weekend. Um, uh, one of my self-righteousness things that I am really good at is fitness. Like, I do a hit workout three days a week. I run three days a week. I rest on the Sabbath. Uh, most... Uh, uh, pretty much every Sabbath, and so I have fitness righteousness. Um, I kind of like, no, okay, I really like. Uh, whip and tail of guys half my age. It's kind of fun. It, it, fe it feeds my fitness righteousness. Uh, you can see what is your idol or your righteousness when it's taken away. So last Monday, uh, I tried to sign up my, for my class, but it was full. They limit 20 people. Uh, and a bunch of Samford students are filling up my class, so I couldn't get in as a result. Messed up my day. It messed up the rhythm because I need my fitness righteousness to navigate my day. It's, it's not rational, but it's real. Here, here's uh, where my fallenness shows up more so uh, is fiscal righteousness or financial righteousness and all the deacons just thought don't let Gary touch the church budget you're right uh, I'm just not motive I missed the gene on how to make money I mean it just doesn't show up in my motivational pattern I like to get it but haven't produced a lot of it uh, and so financial things I, I never get my taxes done on time it just feels like a weight to me. And I can't tell you how often in my marriage, my fitness righteousness and my, my minimizing my financial uh, right, uh, fallenness uh, created havoc in my marriage because it didn't get us into trouble because I don't spend money. But Marilyn wanted to spend a little bit when we had it and created fractures. With my students at Birmingham Southern, it's a small campus where you can do everything, and almost all of them do. And so they have involvement righteousness. Uh, we also have about two-thirds of the campus that are athletes, and I identify with this, that uh, they have athletic righteousness. Their identity is wrapped up in that. 
That's probably a little less true, but probably in the stage of life that many of you are in, you have kid involvement righteousness and kid athletic righteousness. Don't hear me shaming anyone who's a part of that since most of the room is. I loved it. It was one of the most fruitful seasons of my life. But sometimes our involvement righteousness, our athletic righteousness can leave us chasing our tail so much that we neglect our souls. What God would call us to do is to let go of our cover-up, to stop defending our self-righteousness and embrace the ways that we're fallen, uh, the ways that we impact one another. Um, I've had this in my family uh, this summer, I walked through a deep-seated conflict that I did not know was there that had been unresolved for 10 years. And what we had to do to walk through that deep-seated conflict was this. We had to let go of our self-righteousness. We had to embrace our fallenness and we had to listen to one another well. Guess what happened? It got healed. It got healed. You see, this is where a Christian has the advantage if we know that we're far worse off than we ever imagined, but far more loved than we ever dared dream at the same time. We don't have, we don't have to keep being image defensive all the time. We can let it go. We don't have to defend our reputation because we know that we're all train wrecks with issues that we're far worse off than we ever imagined. Um, when, when we have someone that comes that we have conflict with and they bring that conflict into the conversation, um, we can embrace our contribution to that thing and repent of the way we're elevating our righteousness in our narrative, and we could say, tell me more. You don't even know the half of it. Not self-defense, not image management, but repenting of our self-righteousness and, and moving towards one another and stopping our cover-up. We naturally cover up. This story calls us to let it go, to let the defensive self-management go. The middle scene, verses 18 through 25, what it takes to come clean. And it's simply this, it's deeper reflection about our lives than we normally do that's precipitated or provoked by distress. Uh, Joseph has left them three days in prison in the prior scene, and he wants them to experience what he experienced for a decade and to think about why they are there. Uh, on the third day, it's amazing how the third day is a really big deal in the scriptural storyline. All through the scriptural story, he brings them up from the pit, uh, and instead of saying that all of them would be imprisoned except for one man that would go and retrieve their younger brother, instead what he does is says, we'll take one of your brothers, imprison him here, and you, the rest of you nine must go back and retrieve him. Um, and look at where that distressful situation where the brothers' wheels are turning about this deep-seated conflict that they've been embroiled in. 
they're imagining how this news is going to land on the heart of their father, and they know it will not go well. And so they have a moment as their defensive self-management doesn't work anymore to come clean, and they do. Joseph is still there. They're still not recognizing him. Uh, and so they say, they've been speaking through interpreters, so they can't imagine that the man before them would hear them, so they feel free to have a conversation. Look at verse 21. Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of the soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. Can you imagine what that would have felt like for them to come to that honest place? They had swept it under the rug probably for 20 years. This distress gives them an opportunity to more deeply reflect over their betrayal. And Joseph is hearing them. Wow. Look at Joseph's response in verse 23. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. Tears over deep offenses is where we long to be when we stop covering up and come clean. With those that we have hurt, with those that have hurt us, where we desperately need is coming clean so that we can have our hearts melted towards one another in tears. You can't practice this with others unless you practice it first with God. And every day he's inviting us through the word that he has spoken out, not to just give us tips and techniques for how we're to live, but we open this up to let it perform spiritual surgery on our hearts, just as Joseph has been doing with his brothers. Uh, the true and better Joseph does a surgical strike on our hearts through his word, by the power of his, his spirit, to help us come clean on the things that we desperately need to acknowledge and confess and repent of to him. And when we experience a pattern of that through the scriptures, when we practice coming clean with God, we have the soul power, the emotional wealth to begin to do that with one another. Imagine you're embroiled in your family conflict or friend break of some kind, and the narratives that elevate our false narratives are dropped, and you own your fallenness towards one another and the person, you invite the person perhaps, or it comes out to talk about that deep offense. And instead of raising your flag over your self-righteous narrative, you say, tell me more. How did it feel when I said or did that to you? Because the goal is tears of redemption in that deep, deep pain. None of us are good at this. None of us will ever master it. 
I'm preaching it and struggling with it every bit as much as you. So we need to know in the midst of it why we're loved anyway. <laughs> as deep-seated conflict as we have, as unresolved it might be, there's good news in these last two scenes that show us uh, that we're loved anyway by God despite the drama that we've been victimized or the way we've victimized others through our own dysfunction. Uh, let's focus in verses 26 through 38 on, on three things. A double payment, a substitutionary son, and a bereaved and longing father. Let's first take up the double payment. Look actually back at verse 25 where we see it. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in the sack and to give them provisions for the journey. And this was done for them. They had paid a lump sum of money, each one of them, for the grain that they received. Joseph, this one who's trying to do a surgical strike in their hearts, is not just testing them through kind of exposing the narrative. He's also testing them with a double payment of grace. And when they begin their journey back in verse thir uh, 28, uh, one brother opens to feed his, his uh, donkey, uh, and he says, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this their hearts failed them, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, what is this God has done to us? Joseph intended as a surgical strike to help them see grace. They experienced the fear of God in the middle of it, knowing they're in a deep, miry pit that they may not ever get out. But Joseph and God have got their attention. Joseph offers a double payment. They had paid. He pays to show a complete covering of grace. Uh, there's a, probably the most famous chapter, uh, one of the most famous chapters in the book of Isaiah is Isaiah 40. Uh, and I've read it often and struggled with it often over the years until I did a deeper dive into the Hebrew here. Let me just read it to you, the first two verses. Uh, lots of prophecy, and then comfort is announced by Isaiah. And he says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand, double for all their sins. That doesn't sound right at the end, right? That doesn't sound like a pardon. That sounds like a double judgment. And it always left me longing for more and confused. But he's talking about pardon, and the Hebrew word for double means actually a double payment. That God comforts his people uh, and gives them not what they deserve, but a double payment that... Uh, and encompasses them, envelops them in complete grace. Uh, one of the worst inventions of all time is the hospital gown. <laughs> Especially for a man, we are not trained to tie things behind our backs at all. And there's an obvious problem with the hospital gown. It just covers your front side and leaves your backside exposed. Uh, no one likes that. Uh, uh, several years ago, my daughter was being uh, checked out for scoliosis, and so she put on a hospital gown for the first time. I stepped out of the room, of course, for her to do that. And when I opened the door, she had put it backwards, 
and wrapped it around her body like a sarong. She looked beautiful. It was unbelievable. I laughed so hard because that's not how you wear a hospital gown. Uh, but she experienced a complete covering for how she experienced it. And that's what the double payment provides for God. A complete covering. Not just hospital gown righteousness and grace. But a complete and double covering both my front side and my back side, I'm completely covered and enveloped in God's grace. Uh, Joseph offered a double payment. A true and better Joseph offers a double payment by his blood to cover us with his grace. And a substitutionary son, look at verse 33. Then the man, they're recounting to their father, then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, by this... I shall know that you're honest men. If you count, probably seven times the term honest men is coming up, showing the test that Joseph is trying to make. Leave one of your brothers with me. That was Simeon. Uh, one of the older brothers was left behind. And then this is the rest of the promise. By this I know you're honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine for your households and go on your way and bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you are not spies, but honest man. Simeon was the substitutionary son for the rest of Jacob's family. We have a true and better substitutionary son, a, a sinless Simeon on our behalf who is given for us to be our substitute. Uh, you probably know this passage really well, this verse in 2 Corinthians. For our sake... He made him, talking about Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I want you to think about this. I want you to think about your deepest family wound. My parents' divorce. My abusive relationship with someone in my family system whatever it is. And I want you to picture the biggest way you've blown it with sin that still makes your soul chill with deep, deep regret and a struggle to believe that that could ever be clean. For me, it would be, uh, the most recent one would be my wife's death. Imagine it emblazoned on a door. Imagine your deep wound emblazoned on a door. And my sinfulness is the times when I was angry with her and not gentle in her suffering. I don't want to go near that door. I don't want to open it. Because what's there on the other side is so, so scary. The substitutionary son means that what's on the other side of that door for me and for you is Jesus waiting with your deepest pain, your grossest sin. And on the flip side of the door, he writes healing, grace, and forgiveness. And finally, 
we see, once again, a still really emotionally unhealthy Jacob who over-idolizes Benjamin in verse um, 33, say. No, not 33, verse uh, 36. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin? All this has come against me. Jacob is, he's not wrong, but he's really not healthy. Just like you and I. He's blaming his sons for his pain. But the healthy part is he's a bereaved father of Joseph. He's a longing father for his beloved Benjamin. Uh, When we open the New Testament, we see one of the most famous stories of Jesus is about a father who is longing, whose younger son sells everything and wastes it in immorality and uh, wild living, who gets to the end of himself, all of his cover-up, and decides to come clean back to his father. And as Jesus recounts the story, he says, and the father, as his son, was a long way off, which has to mean he often was looking and longing for his greatly dysfunctional youngest son to return. And when he sees them, he doesn't despise him, He runs and he runs and he runs and he runs. And he embraces this dear son that's returning and gives him a kiss for the son of his who is lost has come home. God the Father, because of Jesus the Son, is looking for you. He's looking for you in that same way. Despite the trauma that scars you, despite the incredibly horrible thing that you've done that plagues you, Father is welcoming you home. I think we experience that in the midst of the drama that we live. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you open the arms of a true and better, healthy, longing Father. We thank you that one day all will bow before his feet and we will do so uh, with complete abandonment and we'll be clean and whole and healed from our past trauma and renewed relationships with those that have been deeply broken. Uh, We long for that day. We long for more of it now. Uh, Would the gospel lead us to that healing and whole gracious place, we pray in Jesus' name.